Welcome to Innovating Music, a podcast from the Herb Alpert School of Music at UCLA. We are near the end of year four in this podcast journey, and we've brought you all sorts of cool and crazy people who are attempting to change the music industry in one way or another, areas big and small, technology, social change. We've covered the waterfront. My name is Gigi Johnson. I'm your host and a faculty member in the Music History and Industry Program at Alpert. And I'm glad to bring you more of these conversations. We welcome suggestions from you. We're bringing more of these events live. Please let us know where you'd like us to show up, guests you'd like on the podcast, and other things you'd like us to cover. And please share our podcast on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Please pass it to two or three friends. And they will become our friends, and we will corrupt them into thinking about innovating music as with most guests on this innovating music podcast they are multi-talented multi-potentialists quenda kifense is civic and government leader dj and dance party host He has the wonderful job of being the Cultural Industries Development Officer and Music Lead for the City of Ottawa, as well as went from UCL in London at their Bartlett School of Architecture, ended up studying space syntax architecture and cities for two years. But you can also find him on the boards of Carleton University Art Gallery, and Factor, as well as locally and internationally as DJ Mimetic and the host and creative director of Time Code, an independent dance party in Canada. So for 15 years, he has been a key party in the dance scene. And for a long period of time, he's been a key brain in what's happening with space and cities. This will be an interesting conversation. It will get into the weeds, I promise you. It will come out at the other end, talking about being a DJ. Enjoy this podcast. And if you need to figure out what we're talking about at times, we'll put notes in the show notes. (laughs) Thanks a lot. You're sitting where right now? Uh, Right now, I'm sitting in a neighborhood called the Golden Triangle in a city uh, called Ottawa, which is the capital of Canada. It is about five hours east of Toronto and about two hours west of Montreal. Assuming driving. (laughs) Assuming driving. That's what I'm talking about. Driving, Driving yes. Along a highway. Along a highway called the 401. Okay. It's interesting how we have all these references, right? Mm-hmm. As to what city we're in and where we are and what the distance is. I'm in Los Angeles and we talk on mm-hmm. time, not distance. But you just talked on right. time as well. So that's kind of an interesting mm-hmm. connection there. So y- you yeah. ended up then looking at the issues of music in a city because you are a musician? Yeah, that's correct. And also because I've always been fascinated with cities. You know, I I grew up in the greater Toronto area, just outside of Toronto, starting in Toronto, but end up doing a lot of my school and stuff just outside of Toronto in a city called Mississauga. And I always had a lot of interaction with Toronto because that was where that was sort of like the epicenter of music culture. For me, I was like deep into hip hop culture. I was born in 82. And so I came up around the same time that hip hop was emerging as a more popular form of music, but I was I, I got attached to it when it was still underground as well through my cousins in New York City. And I ended up, yeah, becoming really engaged with the music, just being attached to radio shows. And because at the time you couldn't hear hip hop just like on the radio. There were certain radio shows that you had to tune into at particular times. There were two hour blocks or one hour blocks and the DJs would then promote shows and talk about all the various sort of activities that were going on in the community as it related to hip hop. They would talk about the record shops and, you know, they would start, you know, what I would later learn is what I would later appreciate as, you know, these DJs were essentially doing informatic work in terms of taking sort of the creating a layer of information between me and the activities of this culture. So 
you know, I would always go downtown to these spots and I would, you know, go down there and I would meet people. I would buy records. I would, you know, I was into music in, in the early nineties. That was, you know, that was part of the, that was part of the thing. And, and at the same time, you know, I was collecting records and CDs and other kinds of physical music. I would also, you know, like to explore the city, take uh, days where I would just ride the subway, ride streetcars. Me and my friend used to do this thing called GTA Week, where we would buy these passes, which were Greater Toronto Area transit passes before these transit systems were integrated. Uh, there was a pass that you could buy that would get you on all these various transit systems around the GTA. And we would spend a week just riding around, just having random encounters, going into places that we'd never been, just moving around these transit systems and interacting with the city in a sort of free, kind of way, free radical kind of way. This really sort of tuned my interest in the relationship between culture and cities, because ultimately we were always having some sort of cultural experience, going to a film, a play, a something, a concert or whatever. And these, you know, and having really dynamic interactions with people and places. And so, you know, these experiences coming together sort of started cultivating my interest in if this could be an actual field of study. Now, last week, we had Jesse Elliott on, who used to work Mm -hmm. for Richard Florida. And that's correct. You that was one of the also running into Richard Florida's organization is one of your entry points into this question. Yeah, like it was one of my entry points into the more formalized asking into the broader world of, of, of thinking about this question and researching this question. You know, I met Richard when I was a journalist for a, a new local arts and culture newspaper. There's a period of time where, you know, the work I was doing, I was mainly DJing, which is, you know, a practice that I've been doing for a long time. You know, I was playing around on other people's turntables since the 90s and, and then began sort of going out and gigging and sort of making a living doing that since the early 2000s. I was for a period of time DJing and just writing for the newspaper here in Ottawa after I came here to go to school. And, and you were um, studying... I was doing a program called the College of the Humanities, actually. So it was a program, it's a four-year interdisciplinary program that focuses on uh, sort of uh, classic liberal arts education. So in the first year, we did a, a seminar called Myth and Symbol, which focused on primary text, primary religious texts, the Bible, the Rig Veda, the Quran, Tao Te Ching, all these kinds of things. The second year was ancient philosophy. The third year was literature and fine arts. And the fourth year was political philosophy. Wow. And Sort of political science. That explains a little bit of your framing too. Yeah, for sure. I came there to do that program. It was a specialized little program at Carleton University. That was what sort of brought me to Ottawa and sort of started introducing me into this community. I had a sort of circuitous journey in what was supposed to be my last year. I developed this idea about the relationship between morphological change and cultural emergence. Okay, stop. Uh, because stop, stop, stop. What is that? It's the idea that changing the morphology deals with the shape of net, the shape of movement networks or the shape of networks okay. uh, in general. When we talk about urban morphology, what we're talking about is sort of the shape of the movement network. I guess another way to think about it is just the study of urban form. But in many ways, you, the way you can think about it are sort of like the physical characteristics of a city are built up through the the movement network of the city predicates all of the other components of it. And so when we talk about morphology, we're talking about how all these different parts come together. It's interesting. There's and, a place called the now Institute out here that's doing ooh. similarly, but from the framing of architecture. Yeah, this is, this is architectural, all of these concepts. Okay. My idea came from just researching the history of hip hop culture for my fourth year seminar. I was thinking about wanting to do something about the culture that I was actively participating in and creating and thinking about the way that it emerged like you know preceding the emergence of hip-hop culture there was this radical shift in the physical environment in terms of the south bronx and that hip-hop emerged out of this radically different morphological environment another way to put it is that if you look at the area where hip-hop emerged and then you go back sort of 30 years if you look at it in 1972 or 73 when it emerged and then you go back 30 years and you look at it then, mm-hmm. they look like radically different pieces of urban terrain and urban fabric. 
There were a range of programs that rank that came out of the National Housing Act, the Title I, Title II, Title III, et cetera, that redlined areas of cities and created funds for city administrators like Robert Moses to do things. They create the Cross Bronx Expressway, which opened up all kinds of new pathways and new morphological scenarios, I guess, in that in that part of New York. One of those areas was the place where hip hop emerged. And, you know, I started thinking a lot about the relationship between this change that preceded the building of the places where hip hop started and the idea that a new culture came out of a new form of space. So you were finishing college with that inspiration, DJing and trying to put puzzle pieces together here. Exactly. And that was where I ran into Richard Florida. So Richard Florida, and, for folks who have not listened to the prior podcast episode, followed the links from it, or have gone down that rabbit hole, can you give a snapshot mm-hmm. on Richard Florida's work? Its most famous sort of iteration is the notion of creative class. And it's using you know data to quantify in some way tolerance, I guess. Oh, that's an interesting framing uh, of it. That's the way he actually frames it in his mm-hmm. work. He uses different characteristics as a proxy for tolerance. Richard Florida's work is an interesting pivot point for quite a few people I know that Mm. it has been used by some people as an excuse to invest in and grow creative spaces in a community. And then there's been reflection on the fact of what hath we wrought that we've now created creative incentives in a community that in some cases have been seen as the accelerant to price creative people out of their communities. There's kind of a life cycle of what is creative. And then there also seems to be a bit of a interweaving of creativity and tech companies as to what is creating what might be tech innovation and what might be creating creativity. So it's sort of an interesting lens because you know, I've talked a lot about sort of creative and, and music cities and what happens in them. And a lot of people point back at Richard's work and his work mm-hmm. and his, in connection with his work has catalyzed a lot of things. But there actually is not a vast amount of causal research no. in, in looking at, you know, how do we... How do we plant seeds in this community now that will grow the type of community we'd like to have in the future, especially when it comes to creativity and migration and things like that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. And I mean, the whole notion of this creativity index and the idea that you can instrumentalize sort of measuring where creative people will go as an indicator of how they will cluster I guess that was part of what he was offering to cities is that like we can use these metrics in terms of his creativity index, gay index, bohemian index, these kinds of ideas that it's the human capital that's inherent in these places that is actually going to create the prosperity that we're looking for. The idea that human capital is at the core of prosperity is a good concept, Mm -hmm. but it's challenging the way that it's been sold to and adopted by cities. So you yourself have stepped into a leadership role in this for Ottawa. Yeah. I guess for a little while after I started writing, uh, I used to write on the Creative Class Exchange blog. So I used to write quite a bit, just sort of tossing around these ideas in different kinds of ways. And through doing that and writing for the newspaper and you know DJing, I guess, as well, I connected up and ended up starting to work for the city of Ottawa doing work as a cultural industry development officer. So I do a lot of work, strategic thinking about culture, developing long-range strategies, and then also developing particular industry sectors, in particular music. Are there a lot of people doing that in other cities? Mm, In Canada, there's quite a few. I mean, there's quite a few. In Canada, I would say there's about five or maybe six or seven others we're doing this kind of work. And throughout the States, it's becoming more uh, of a thing, you know, in terms of people who are focusing. I mean, you know, to be fair, in some of these other cities, a lot of them have specifically music officers. Cultural industries is sort of a broader umbrella. There are definitely departments who focus on that kind of thing in other cities in Canada. and And I've seen it in the U.S. as well. 
So what has the past decade wrought for you? In addition to sort of having to deal with the real politic of launching a broad cultural strategy for a city, and then within that launching a music strategy for a specific sector of the city, then I I went back to school and re-educated or upgraded my education in a different kind of way. I moved to the UK and went to the Bartlett School of Architecture to do uh, a master's in space syntax architecture in cities. Then I came back, and and now here we are. So that was pretty much the 10 years. So from the beginning to the end of the 10 years that you've been on this journey, how has the understanding of music cities changed? It's an illustrative term. I think that there is still a little bit of fuzziness there as it relates to not just the application of it in practice, but actually the promise of it. And what understanding the way that music engages with cities uh, can actually tell us. I think that it's as a result of, in some ways, a kind of myopic focus on just the music part of the music cities. Or the economic Uh, part of it, maybe? Well, yeah, exactly. Uh, The economic part and not sort of considering, you know, what the economic part is is predicated it's by. almost the formal th- versus the informal as well in some ways as well yeah i mean i think that there's a predilection to think about things in terms of i guess um i would say or i would suggest a mm-hmm. company focused frame so right. that the entities you're looking at and measuring in many cases are a venue or an artist or a economic size or... And by having such a strong company focus, what you miss is the idea that all of these companies are undergirded by a use of space. Mm. And I think that there's a utility to having actually more of a spatial focus, particularly when you're dealing with in the city context. I mean, when you're talking about the music industry in America, that's one thing because you're obviously you're talking about sort of like a big number in terms of an economic output. When you're talking about the way that it actually functions mechanically in a city, it's quite a different thing. Because there are a limited amount, you know, in in every city, when we think about, you know, how does music work in a particular city? The way it works is that there are spaces where it happens and there are a limited number of spaces. Or or there's formal and informal spaces. I mean, one thing is that we're definitely seeing in LA and other cities is that there's a re-breaking of the concept of a venue and a music space. Mm -hmm. Well, even beyond the stage of the value chain where you're at venue, Mm -hmm. you know, if you think about how, again, going back to the notion of how music functions in a community, let's think about how does a song get created anywhere? Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? It's like some first somebody has to learn how to play music. There has to be somewhere where somebody learns how to do it. And whether it's at their house or, or they get lessons somewhere in their community. Maybe they learn how to play a song on the internet. That's cool. Yep. But or an ensemble that they wander in and get kind of mentored and coached into whatever right. it is. But it's like whatever it is, they learn. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, they have to produce this song. And then again, you can do this at home. You know what I mean? Like it's not to say that, the, that these kinds of domestic spaces aren't part of the industry because more and more they mm-hmm. are. But then there's a part of it where you have to take it out of your house to somewhere to perform. And this is where you get <laughs> so say, Unless you're Billie Eilish and Phineas who did all this stuff initially in their home, in their bedroom. But I think what's fascinating is that even if they did, there came a point where they had to get out of their bedroom. Mm-hmm. And that's the point where the industry and the community connect. Mm-hmm. And it happens somewhere in an urban system. And where it is in an urban system is relevant because I think that what we see or what my research was about when I, when I went to UCL was about the distribution pattern of music industry assets as value chain categories in a neighborhood. What's a value chain? I spend a lot of time with 20-year-olds trying to explain what a value chain is. And mm. a lot of people don't see it. They see that somebody created a song and somehow it ends up on my Spotify account. And the fact right. that there's pieces of that value chain that 
get it into funded aggregation, distribution, and all that stuff that each take a mm-hmm. piece of an economic puzzle. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is, this, is, this is the thing, is that like any product, no matter, like it starts in a raw state. And the part of the role of the value chain is to add value to that concept to the point where it's prepared, where it's ready for mass consumption. Mm-hmm. And available, and you know, ready that and happens. available, and is is exactly ready and available and discovered. for mass consumption. So, and so that means that there's a stage of creation, there's a stage of production, but then there's a stage of intermediation, mm-hmm. which is critical as well because that's the part where the industry comes in, and the industry are the inter. That's where the intermediation happens, where it's like, okay, now you need, now you have a manager, now you have an agent, now you have somebody who's connected to the broader structures of the music industry who can then get this thing into the point of distribution and consumption, whether that means live consumption through shows or obviously consumption through listening on streaming apps or consuming physical music. And it's interesting how and, local, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people mm-hmm. in quote unquote, the industry. That's part of what I do. Mm-hmm. And for many mm-hmm. of them, there's a, a chronic belief now that the industry is global and local doesn't mean as much. But local is where a lot of the parts of the value chain still happen. That's what I'm saying. As global as it is, it still has to happen in a number of local places for it to matter. If you look at artists, why do they tour? Because the whole idea is that you can't create that experience with an audience unless you're actually there or unless you give them something that they can actually engage with. And that's part of what the value of the show is. And the idea that these places, these venues, these sites of intermediation, these studios, these schools where people learn music, that, that the connection between all of those sites is what the music industry is in terms of the part of it that creates value. But then there's another part of it, which is broadly extractive of value. And that's that other lens that we were talking about previously comes in when we think about the music industry. Extractive meaning that... It means that a lot of this value, again, is created at the level of these local networks. People learn how to be musicians where they live. But then there's a point at which they enter the music industry. At that point, all of that value that was created at that level, I wouldn't call it purely extractive because it's not. They're adding a lot of value to the picture as Mm -hmm. well. But at the same time, it's predicated on all of this stuff that was happening at this local level. So part of it, there's more and more levels are almost new business stations of support, distribution, management, community, discovery, that in many ways also are embedded in the local environment. Yeah, this is why thinking in a different way about the way that the local environment cultivates or the way the, the relationship between the structure of the local environment and the structure of the industry matters. And it's interesting because in some of the conversations that we've been part of with other people in various mm-hmm. convenings is that mm-hmm. cities are beginning to look at this and say, wait, 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 what the heck is going on? And how do we stay robust in an era where we've got both growth in global music, but selective mm-hmm. growth. And mm-hmm. then we've got people who are growing up in our communities who are creative. How do we make this a place they want to stay and where they can yeah. thrive. And so mm-hmm. that's where all these music city studies have seeming come up with people doing a single benchmark in many cases to sort of see what right. does this sort of spatial and economic and human thing. And it's interesting because I'm seeing a lot of snapshots, but not a mm-hmm. lot of intervention or dynamic models yeah. that allow you to actually sort of characterize the health of the system. And I think that that's something that is broadly within the context of these conversations is kind of missing is the idea that, you know, when we think about a music city materially, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. You know, does that mean that there are a hundred venues? Does that mean that there are 30 music schools or is there a ratio relative to sort of people and spaces where it's happening? Does it mean that people are just consuming? Does it mean that people are just consuming lots of music? Like some of these things haven't been, I, I think not only have not, have they not been clarified, but I think that the idea that each community based on the kind number and configuration of assets that it has will have a different metabolism for music. Mm, I love that. 
hasn't really been like explored uh, fully. Well, it, it's barely been looked at in terms of just supply and demand. That's what I'm yeah, saying. Yeah, but, but I mean, but but that's still a static snapshot that you're commenting really about where where's the heat and friction and yeah and, and what's kind of the 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 moving dynamic modeling. So what what I've seen right. on a fair number of these studies that have been now done is a single snapshot looking at legal venues, possibly illegal venues, possibly schools and and formal institutions possibly categorizing artists by jobs and job type, possibly capturing a few other job types. Yeah. No, I mean, and no demand side of the equation, no understanding of what the people in that city, how they actually are consuming music. Yeah. And I mean, for me, I mean, my research was based in a different kind of way. So, I mean, it, firstly, it was based on using a theory and method called space syntax. And, you know, it was space syntax. What it allows you to do is to quantify network relationships in urban networks based on a couple of metrics, one uh, being integration and the other one being choice. And so integration has to do with connectivity between one segment of the street network and every other segment of the street network. And then choice has to do with the critical paths through the street network, which connect, which are, or I guess the paths through the street network that are most central at a range of different scales. So if you had to go from one point in the street network to any other point in the street network, which are the paths that are used most often? How is that measured? It's measured in terms of, again, these metrics called integration and choice. And a good way to think about it, I guess, it's what it's measuring is the hierarchy of these streets. But are you measuring so it by taking, some clicking mechanism, phone movement? Well, there's a two... Pardon me, what do you mean? So, uh, so conceptually versus actually getting the data. Right. So the data is, the data is actually derived straight from uh, a street map. And so it's derived straight from what's called a road center line map. Okay. And, you know, what it's measuring, again, it's taking each segment and then it's taking the road center line map. It's breaking it up into segments. And it's taking each segment and measuring its proximity to every other segment in the network in a program called depth map. And then what it produces is essentially a visualization. Behind that visualization are a range of values. And those values relate to the relationship between each segment and every other segment. So you're trying to see so then like, the, the, sort of the closest paths or the deepest closest paths. Yeah. Keep in mind that you don't do this at just one scale. You do this at a range of different scales. So what you can look at is sort of what is that measure in terms of integration and that, again, that sort of most connected to every other segment. Within a 200 meter radius, within a 400 meter radius, within a, within a 10 kilometer radius, within a 20 kilometer radius. So you're kind of looking and, at streets. I tend to look at streets as a reflection of the growth of a city of having to create the network underneath of where we are moving into. But this is almost looking at the opposite, looking at streets as the influencers of how we actually collaborate and connect. Absolutely. What we're able to demonstrate through observation techniques and through some statistical processes is that the configuration of the street network is, is a strong determiner of social activity. And it makes sense. Like when you're thinking about going somewhere, say you're thinking about going from your house to the corner store to do some microeconomic activity, you know, the way you conceive your path determines a whole range of interactions that you're going to have. At the same time, though, isn't this assuming that you're leaving your house? I'm curious mostly right now, again, mm. the supply versus demand side of this thing, as to mm. a lot of looking at cities are saying, symptomatically, we see venues closing. We hear artists commenting, complaining, or leaving in the fact that there's not an economic way to be thriving in the city that they're in. Mm. And at the same time, though, when we look at things like how the physical spaces are influencing what's going on and, and mm-hmm. gentrification, which is such a large concept. Mm-hmm. But if it is that in a city that people aren't getting out of their homes other than to go to major shows and that, you know, if we see symptomatically that a, a significant percentage of 
space in your average restaurant now is being reconfigured mm-hmm. for food packaging for delivery. We see um, mm-hmm. numbers going down in terms of tickets sell for least motion pictures in the United States. You know, mm-hmm. are these all symptoms that are also things in music so that we have these physical spaces and these street configurations and these things assuming that we do physical movement to go somewhere and leave mm-hmm. our home? Yes. But we may not be. Frequently at events where someone says, and I just saw this actually in Forbes this past week, music business mm-hmm. live performance is doing fine. It's up X percent. But then they're looking at Polestar and they're getting from that one big picture view that people are, you know, that, that, that the top end concerts are getting more mm-hmm. people going to them or at least more revenue going to them. But we're not looking under the hood at all as to saying in my city, we have this infrastructure, but people aren't leaving their home to actually go well, to the this is a Well, this is the point that I was making. Mm-hmm. This circles back to, I, I think, to a point that I, that I wanted to make in terms of the way that not only we think about sort of the rationale of the way that the street network relates to the society and the sort of space society relationship, but also the way we think about these assets with respect to the music industry. And so part of the way that I was looking at these different stages of the value chain, I was doing different kinds of classification of particularly of the consumption stage, because when it looked at, when I was thinking about consumption, I was looking at spaces where you could consume music in terms of buying it. So record shops and other kinds of music retail Mm -hmm. and also instrument retail, et cetera. And then also performance spaces. But I was classifying them in terms of the way that they were booked. So I was looking at local, regional, and national, international bookings. Mm -hmm. And what you recognize is that there is a relationship between spatial centrality and the scale of venue Hmm. that these things Mm -hmm. are in terms of where the national and international places are situated, the pattern of distribution of those national and international spaces, and the pattern of distribution of the places that deal with local and regional talent. Interesting. Okay, so if someone wanted to see this type of work or get their fingers into it, how would they do so? That's a very good question. I mean, I need to present this research in a more fulsome kind of way, and I haven't quite yet. I do have a range of visualizations. My dissertation was very sort of map and stats heavy. Mm. And so it well, is I can imagine that from visual. our conversation so far. Yeah, for sure. But you're encouraging me that I do need to make some time to present these ideas. And it's something that I'm, I'm actively in the process of doing. But I mean, there is other work about space syntax, which you can check out, not specifically with this relationship to music, but in other the, kinds of social phenomena. Yeah, yeah so sure. I'm trying to look from from this really great but detailed lens into the practical questions and let me t- take that to you in Ottawa right so you're in Ottawa yeah. and you have a professional position both mm-hmm. as a DJ creator co-creator but you also are trying to be encouraging decision making in the city and a community yeah. that is actually supportive for creators how do you both take this lens and do things with it, but also what are the things you would recommend maybe with other cities who are trying to figure Mm -hmm. out, okay, so we see some pieces of this, but what do we actually do? Yeah. And I mean, you know, these are things that I struggle with as well because I work inside a large organization and, you know, to be frank, where my unit is, isn't positioned the best within that organization. And so you're dealing with sort of like structural power issues as well as just the basics of just trying to engage people with an idea when there are a range of competing ideas Mm -hmm. always around. That's just the nature of City Hall. And Um, not just City Hall. City Hall is sitting in the midst of a bunch of nonprofit and for-profit organizations also with their own lenses. And City Hall then rotates as to its... Mm -hmm. Yeah, who leads and all of this kind of Mm -hmm. thing. Maybe that's why I haven't actually done a formal presentation of my research because I've been occupied with this whole uh, navigating organizations component of things. And it definitely is a larger component of of this than I would have liked. So let me put a different lens on this on top of it. So let's mm -hmm. say you are a 25-year-old creator Mm -hmm. and you are now trying to figure out where you could go to grow. Yeah. Are are you having any information other than, oh, I should be in 
Los Angeles or New York or Berlin, what I'm seeing is that it's hard enough for a city to have any kind of grasp on this. But, you know, where would be the, you know, if, if I had an industrial company, there would be maybe data and incentive systems and things yeah, that no, exactly. And, and cities in terms of competing for the next generation of creatives, how does a creative totally know right. anything about, wait, there's a great program in. And again, we just had Jesse on from Fort Collins who's trying to right. do that. And there's a, other and I mean, cities yeah, that are no, intentionally doing it. You know, what's available for your regular person? I mean, and certainly we, there are these policy documents things like these music strategies, things like economic impact statements about sort of the industry. And we're fortunate to have an organization in our community, like the Ottawa Music Industry Coalition, who works with the industry and with the city to help put these kinds of signals out there such that people can understand that, you know, this is a place that's taking music seriously. And I think this is part of the challenge. Many cities are going to develop policies that will signal that. But in terms of how they're able to create those realities and actually follow through with those policies. And measure them, right? So we did this policy intervention and then we don't do a second study. (laughs) or or, We've done this great baseline, but we didn't know what we had. And and in some cases, there are other things going on. Sometimes you do a good piece of work and then you're not allowed to report on it for whatever reason. Or it's edited. The research side of it, I think, is critical because things have to be grounded in data. And I think that, not in data, but in, in information and wisdom, to be honest. I think that there are more advanced methods for that. But then even beyond that, navigating the dynamics of these large organizations is a big component of making these things actually work. And so the other opportunity, which I know you're involved with Music Policy Forum, is trying to do some comparative work, right? So you've done work there. There's lots of work done now in in Austin and Toronto and and now D.C. and lots of cities to kind of get co-inspired. And I think that, again, going back to sort of research methods, I think that this is where some of the syntactic stuff can really come come in handy, connecting to the broader idea of thinking about industry in a more metabolic kind of way because you know when we're comparing cities it can be challenging definitely in terms of size scale assets etc but one thing that we can do particularly through this syntactic method is break cities down as physical objects based on the connectivity of the various places in the city so if the city is broken up into neighborhoods you can look at the relative connectivity of one neighborhood to all the rest of the neighborhoods in the city and the city as a whole. And then you can start looking at where the music industry assets are. Are they in sort of like the top decile of connected places? Are they in the the bottom decile of connected places? Or is it that it could be encouraging for a real estate developer to take a look at, wow, there's nothing here and there should be. Why is it? Is there some history there? Uh, Exactly. And then you can start connecting a little bit, like you said, sort of like the social to the spatial and and start understanding a little bit more about what might be going on in terms of the more dynamic picture. Or or to see erosion and trying to figure if there's something Mm -hmm. symptomatically that can be changed. Yeah, absolutely. uh, And part of it, I I, I do come back to the fact, though, that we are, we broadly, we industry, we non-public we, I should say public we, because mm-hmm. I, I do know there's organizations who know the demand side well. And right. uh, they're keeping, of course, that as their secret sauce to understand what mm-hmm. actually is happening with whether it's ticket sales in the community, not, you know, non-ticket sales. Um, you can scrape social oh. media numbers. but Yeah. And part of the way I tend to look at some of this stuff is to think about the industry as a kind of emergent system. And, you know, the system has to have some sort of network structure, terminal units, and energy. And when I think about what the proxy for energy is, when we think about... Okay, we're going to stop again. Terminal Mm. units and energy and emergent systems. If someone wants to know more about this space, where do they go? I would go to the Santa Fe Institute. Yeah, that's probably the best place to sort of get a backgrounder on some of these concepts. Which is under the realm of complex emergency. Complex emergency. Yeah, systems. complexity science. Yeah, yeah, yeah complexity. Which I must systems, admit, yeah. I never even ran into until, I mean, we're, I was trying to talk about some of this at an industry event this past week, and someone looked at me and goes, This sounds very doctoral. 
<laughs> and I'm going, <laughs> yes, I never heard of much of any of this stuff till I went and got my doctorate uh, of looking right. at complexity science. So that's a whole nother rabbit hole. We'll have that in the show notes. Yeah. And so, I mean, when we, th- so when we're thinking about these types of spaces that support music, and this is part of why, again, why I'm interested in looking at it from this perspective. If these places, if, if we can index sort of centrality to, or connect or uh, correlate centrality to land values mm-hmm. and understand the relationship between centrality land values and what people are paying for rent. Ultimately, if this place can continue to exist month by month, they must be doing enough business to exist. Could be a hobby or it could be. Oh yes. Of course. I'm not suggesting that it's, it's robust, but what I'm suggesting is that whatever activity is happening there, it's enough to keep this place rented as a place that's doing music or, you know, operational as a place that's doing music. And, you know, those places are the critical places in, in these communities. So let me... Whether it's a studio mm-hmm. or a venue or, you know, an office where a label is, is housed or whatever it is. And some of it, the, the, the metabolic nexuses are changing. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. um, I run into so many small companies who are doing amazing things, not geographically dependent, but living here in LA, mm-hmm. working here in LA, mm-hmm. that are at these new collaboration points that aren't yeah. being tracked or measured either. So I, that's a part of my area of fascination is we spend a lot of time in a lot of these city-based work looking at the endpoints. Mm. And not the new combination points, whether it's new collaborative yeah. spaces on the creation side, which are exactly. growing. We're fighting like growing. crazy, sort of migrating performance spaces. Maybe you think of progressive dinners where you're kind of no, moving exactly. from place to place, which doesn't show up in any kind of maps and models. But all yep. sorts of new layers of, of companies and people. I was just at Digital Entertainment World last week. And we were talking in one of the panels about how there's whole new kind of levels of ecosystems that I tend to think of like a bizarre layer cake that combines yeah. um, the, the new technology tools with new layers of people that are working with all this stuff that are also could be in almost any community, but yeah. are tending to gather where there is a gathering of artists. Exactly. And it's like, again, that goes back to the whole idea of geographical proximity. It's like, there is still the phenomena of people, of smart people wanting to be around smart people, or people who are active in an activity wanting to be around others who are active in that activity. That has not disappeared. And the way it functions in cities is that they find spaces that have a reasonable geographical proximity to either the actors or some other resource that's connected to doing that thing. And yet, can cities catalyze that? So this is where I've gotten a conversation with several cities about mm. the, well, we've got venues and new venues. We've got creators, performers, multimedia artists. We're missing that integrating layer that is willing to, yeah. you know, that other than somebody's friend, who's willing mm-hmm. to then be helping create the other layers of the cake. And, and, and that yeah. seems to be an interesting question because those folks are coming to L.A. and maybe not as much New York anymore. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so, you know, the, the, that intervening layers, which can yeah. be a result, are also in a lot of studies not being measured. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's sort of like looking at those patterns, both as, as of land use as a foundation, but you have to build other layers on top of that to really get a more dynamic view of the picture. And so I think that, you know, once you start, once you're able to understand sort of where all of these, again, sort of looking at the terminal units of the system in terms of either distribution, consumption, intermediation, creation, you know, et cetera. Then from there, you can start building other layers on top of it. And now we talked a little bit about the idea of dynamism. And that is the challenging part. And that's where sort of like some of these urban informatic or smart cities, whatever you want to call it. And some of it is not necessary. As you mentioned, there are ways to scrape, you know, Facebook and other kinds of ways to get sort of some dynamic information into the system. But I think that's the other part of it. It's like you have to build the model and then you have to try and bring dynamic information into the system so that you can then calibrate it, you know, 
based off of that. So if anybody wants to fund an Internet of Things project that is looking at all <laughs> right. of this, this is some of the actually conversations I've been in recently is they, what's the business model for actually gathering the data for this or the economic model or this well, human support think, model or the, or the... I think that part of the model, and it, I, part, I think part of the model connects to media. This is just an insight that I've had based on what's happening in the city that I live in. One of the things that's been challenging for our local media ecosystem or our local media, you know, the reporting side of it. Yeah, not just the reporting side of it, but sort of the role that this information and informatic layer plays in connecting audience to uh, content, Mm -hmm. whether it's live content, recorded content, what have you. The need for that network that's not your personal network. That's actually a professional network. That's job it is to connect people to content. That piece, you know, and this is sort sort of where I won't say I reject your idea about people leaving their house less, but I will say that. But we just don't know, right? But what I would say is that many of the media outlets who I've talked to in my city, their challenge is that they can't keep up with event calendars. Mm -hmm. It's that there's stuff, so much stuff going on that they end up spending all of their time sort of trying to track the stuff that's going on because that's where people go when they go to these websites, these local blogs, these sort of, uh, sort of improvised news sources. Mm -hmm. Some of them not improvised. Some of them are actually quite professional and exceptional, but one of their most hit pages is event listings. What we're seeing is that people want to find events. They want to know where to go. And this is where it comes back to trying to understand better where the terminal units and where are the places that they're going in the network and how are they all connected? And is even the visibility a element of structural so, friction like, bias? I mean, if you look at a lot yeah. of event listings, they tend to be dominant culture event listings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No doubt. This is part of why you need to go. I think it's important to go deeper into scenes and understand a lot better how these localized scenes of emergent creative activity are actually spatializing. <laughs> like what, how are, I, you and I are very nerded out in this entire podcast and very, well, I'm no, saying. no, no, but it, it's great. But I think that is the interesting thing, kind of to bring this full circle from the beginning of our conversation. When you're mm-hmm. early on talking about emergent hip hop in the South Bronx, people really, having emergent culture forming and and that kind of comes full circle back to the richard florida work but what was fascinating about that is that there was spatial isolation but then there was also spatial connectivity to midtown where all the music business was Mm. and it was the connection between sort of like this spatially isolated place in the north of new york and midtown where all of the clubs and the music industry offices were that led to the globalization of the culture We could continue this conversation for a while. We are at the end of our conversation thread. So let me, let me, let me (laughs) add a closing question and see what you'd like to add to it, which is the, we're now in 2020 having this conversation. You've been in this conversation for at least 10 years. There's Mm -hmm. been, I don't know. I think uh, I've got a, a grid at, musicnla.org about all the different studies I've been able to capture and gather that have been done. Mm -hmm. Where do you think we'll be in five years in looking at these issues? I hope we'll be at the point where we're able to approach it in a way that allows us to observe the deeper patterns that cut across multiple industries. I think ultimately what we're going to see is that music in cities is an indicator itself. And the way in which music communities and culture emerges in cities is a broader indicator of the health of these cities. And, you know, that, but being able to quantify that and being able to deal with it as a physical and statistical phenomena, I think will be really critical for being able to articulate and advocate for why these types of spaces are really important. Anything we haven't mentioned that you'd like to talk about before we close? I've been DJing for 15 years now with my partner, DJ Zatar. We do something called Time Code. That's T-I-M-E-K-O-D-E, Time Code with a K. And it is my musical practice, uh, party rocking. 
And we've been at it for a long time and we're pretty good at it. And currently we're working on a documentary about the history of this party and the relationship between the growth of the party and the growth of the city that we're in. Cool. How can someone get a hold of you if they're interested in this work and your work? If they're interested in, in getting down on some party rocking type stuff, they can go to timecode.com or look us up on YouTube, T-I-M-E-K-O-D-E. If they're interested in talking a little bit more about uh, spatial network analytics and emergent systems and modeling music industries, they can hit me up on maybe Twitter. What am I on? I'm trying to remember. Um, yeah, Quende is memetic on Twitter. Man, that's actually really complicated. Um, K-W-E-N-D-E. D-E and then I-S and memetic, M-E-M-E-T-I-C. That's my, that's, I go by memetic as a DJ. So my DJ moniker is DJ memetic. So Quende is memetic. Uh, holler at me on, yeah, on Twitter or, um, or yeah, email, first name dot last name at Gmail. And where would you want them to reach out if they're interested overall in Music Cities? Is there another way that they can get engaged more broadly I would there? say... Yeah, I would say check out Music Policy Forum, which is a group that I'm a part of, which brings together some Canadian and U.S. perspectives on this. And we're rolling out our 2020 work plan imminently, which includes sort of a research partnership, which I'm going to be really involved with. And so I would say check out Music Policy Forum. Musicpolicyforum.org. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so shout out to my American colleagues who, yeah, I've been doing a lot of great work on this. I think you can be found also on Facebook uh, for Music Policy Forum and other great places. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we're on, we're on Facebook. We're on the Twitter. The Twitter. Uh, we're out there. We're out there. Great. Thank you very much for joining me. I appreciate the work and the insights, and I'm looking forward to other people joining us down this rabbit hole. Oh, thank you. Um, thanks for reaching out. And that was a really fun conversation. Right, It's rare that I get to geek out this hard. Good. Excellent. <laughs> and that wraps up our episode of Innovating Music. Thanks for listening. You can find us at innovatingmusic.org, which takes you to all the right places in the UCLA Herb Alpert School of Music webpage. You can find us on Instagram. Facebook with a fairly new Facebook group to have conversations about this episode. You can find us on Twitter, all on Innovating Music, as well as you can find our links from our innovatingmusic.org page. You can find all of our past podcasts. We're finding more and more that people are listening to lots of past podcasts. So please go back in and enjoy and share the ones you really like. Please stay tuned, share ideas and where you'd like us to come and continue to enjoy episodes of Innovating Music. Thanks. Thanks for listening. You have found one of our adventures now in the Marimel Podcast Network. You can find our shows everywhere that you listen to podcasts. We've got Amplify Music Conversations from the Amplify Music Conferences during the pandemic, Creative Innovators, and now Innovating Music. If you're interested in following up with us in any of these shows, please reach out on our websites and you can find those in the show notes.